Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today's show is a little bit different from our norm. Today, I'm recording on the campus of Bryant University, which hosted a terrific conference this weekend on the subject of genocide in world history. The conference was held as the annual meeting of the Northeast Region of the World History Association and attracted scholars from a variety of states and several different countries. I thought it represented an opportunity to get a good feel for the kind of subjects and interests that are at the forefront in the field today. With me today to talk about their research and about the conference are four very different scholars in the field. They run the gamut both in terms of age and experience and in terms of topics. I'm lucky to have them with me today. And in order of appearance, they're Jonathan Bush, lawyer and historian, who also teaches classes at Columbia uh, law, at the Columbia Law School. John Cox, uh, historian at UNC Charlotte. Tommy O'Connell, an independent uh, scholar, formerly of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. And Michael Bryant, uh, a professor of history at Bryant University and longtime university, uh, excuse me, longtime listeners to the show may recognize his name. He was... Um, generous enough to give us time for an interview several months ago. And so what we'll do is we'll start out asking each of them to briefly describe the paper they presented today and how it fits into their broader research interests. And then we'll move on from that uh, to talk a little bit about their broader impressions of the conference and, and of the field. So that's our direction. And I want to start out by saying thanks to all of you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. And so, Jonathan, um, you presented a paper today titled Lemkin and Nuremberg, uh, How Prosecutors and Judges in the First International Trials Use Lemkin's Proposals. So I'd like to ask you just a, to start out by, by saying a little bit about your paper and what you wanted to do with it. I was trying to look at the law of, of genocide from the time it was really coined by, by its inventor, Raphael Lemkin, in a 1944 book, and the... Uh, convention, the Genocide Convention at the end of 1948, which goes in a very different direction with a, with a definition that's problematic mm. uh, in many ways. And I tried to look at a number of cases where I, the normal view is that he advised at the first Nuremberg trial, felt it, it went wrong uh, in, in mm. using his concept, went home and lobbied the UN. And I tried to look at other cases, a few from uh, Poland, uh, but many more from the second round of Nuremberg trials that the Americans led. 12 trials from 1946 to 49, and look at how the uh, judges and prosecutors in those cases used genocide uh, differently from what was adopted a few years later, and how there were alternatives, like theories of crimes against humanity. But, so, can you say more, a little bit more about the alternatives? The alternatives uh, would have emphasized more, they actually look very similar. What they're, what they're not burdened with is this intent requirement of proving not just that a political mass atrocity, a horrible thing happened, but that the uh, perpetrators had a particular aim of destroying a group. Hmm. Uh, because there are lots of cases where 
is just an orgy of killing where we by perpetrators who don't have that intent or where it can't be proven. Um, some of the best lawyers of the day, um, including the French chief judge at the Nuremberg trial himself, had led a movement in, 40, in 1947 to push this other theory instead. Hmm. And oddly enough, you know, however it is in the race for public attention, uh, the genocide theory uh, was adopted. I have no problem with that, hmm. but it, when it got adopted, it came in a particular idiosyncratic way that many people find difficult today. Hmm. So how does this fit into your, your broader research interests? Well, that's an easy one. My own research is a, um, a long-running project. I have lots of uh, outtakes, I guess, that I publish from it, but it's a biography um, of Telford Taylor, the chief American prosecutor at those 12 later Nuremberg trials, and pretty much anything that his uh, office, the Nuremberg prosecutors, were working on is grist for my mill, mm-hmm. as is his uh, later career, which was this important civil liberties lawyer and, and, so, and, and scholar. Hmm. And so, so as you look back, how, 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 how is this, the, the thinking you've done in putting to this paper, has it, has it changed this broader perspective? Has, how has it informed this broader work? Well, it doesn't really change what, you know, what I think of Lemkin. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess I view Lemkin now as more of a competing mm-hmm. advocate in the, in the realm of kind of human rights, you know, early human rights discourse. Mm-hmm. But it, it underscored for me how lively, I mean, Taylor's staff at Nuremberg uh, was well over 200 lawyers and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of research assistants and interrogators. And it's really like a, I mean, and, and by contrast to today, the many federal agencies, there were branches of the Justice Department that were smaller than that. Hmm. And so here is this a very large legal effort going on in Germany by Americans led by Taylor, and they're constantly debating and they're trying different hmm. things. And, and, and so I really kind of see this ideas and ferment on their side. Some of them gain traction with, with the court, some don't. Interesting. Well, let's turn to John Cox. Um, and your paper talked about resistance to genocide toward a, a comparative understanding. And you also started out your paper talking a little bit about definitions. And I wonder if you could say something. If your paper's about resistance, how do you think about resistance and try and wrestle with this definition? Sure, yeah. Because actually my paper, which tried to do a little too much, I tried to take on a whole question of, uh, you know, the Jonathan was just talking about, about yeah. defining genocide and so on. And then also with defining resistance which also the main two things that have kind of been in my teaching and research career in recent years. Um, so, yeah, I started with some strong thoughts about the definitions of, resi- of genocide, because I have a book coming out in a couple months that devoted a large part of the introduction to that. And um, but then I dealt with how to define resistance, because as with genocide, how, one, how we define it has a lot to do with what we see and what comes into our field of vision and so on. And um, so I define resistance, uh, I don't have a nice little <laughs> quotation right in front of me, but as with genocide definitions, I believe in being a bit flexible. And in, um, at any rate, in the early years of Holocaust and genocide research in the 60s and 70s and 80s, there was a, too much of a rigid, static definition of resistance that defined it, especially in Holocaust studies, simply as um, armed resistance uh, by people who may have had the power to overthrow Hitler, and that tends to narrow you all the way down to the folks who conspired to bump off Adolf Hitler uh, and carried out that attempt on July 20th, 1944. Also, those definitions were very much hostage to Cold War politics and so on. And so on the west side of the so-called Iron Curtain, uh, politicians and universities and so on 
and book publishers just wanted to look at the few number of conservative resistors they could find, and they would overlook the much more numerous forms of communist or left-wing resistance. And then um, in the Soviet Union and Eastern Germany and elsewhere, they only looked at communist resistance to the exclusion of everything else. But anyway, so we have to start by just looking much more broadly. So I've been, uh, that is, that um, it's all sorts of efforts individually or collectively to undermine the uh, the power of the oppressor um, count as resistance. I've learned from people like James C. Scott, an anthropologist who studied forms of resistance, you know, by peasants, uh, enslaved societies, and so on. Other people have looked, I'm, I'm just as interested, really, in African-American history as I am in Nazi Germany, which is my main dissertation field. And I see in there a lot of examples, too, of things that I would term uh, self-assertion, nonconformity, dissidence, um, resilience, refusal to submit. All these things are part of how humans find ways to to maintain a culture uh, and maintain values like solidarity and so on that are under siege and under attack. And then also that definitely applies in looking at Nazi Germany and Nazi-occupied Europe. Uh, we can see ways in which Jewish people and other targeted peoples um, maintain cultural practices that are under siege, help people who are uh, maybe collected money from political prisoners, um, had underground prayer circles and libraries and the ghettos and so on, as well as participating in armed resistance. Because actually Jewish folks participated much more widely than is known in armed resistance, either their own groups or other groups. And you talked about um, Germany and Spain in your paper. Right. I wonder, I, now I know that any time you create a conference paper, you carve out a huge amount of thinking and knowledge yeah. into 15 minutes. <laughs> and now I'm going to ask you to carve out from that 15 minutes just a minute and a half. But yeah, how, how do you compare those the, the examples of resistance in those two places? Yeah, well, I'll say, first of all, that I can't summarize that in a minute and a half. Fair so enough. You'll have to read all my forthcoming Fair enough. <laughs> over the next 50 years. But uh, in that case, I tried to slim it down a little bit by looking at the uh, left-wing resistance. Yeah. Um, and also as part of definitions that Jonathan and most people I think would agree with me that the 1948 UN definition should have included political groups mm-hmm. as groups that could conceivably be targeted and so on. But anyway, of course, Hitler and the Franco regime, uh, both in its war and then after coming to power in early 39, uh, Franco, like Hitler, targeted communists, didn't make much of a distinction between all the different types of people on the left and groups on the left. The fact is that in both those countries, the Stalinist That is, I would say, the Moscow-directed, Moscow-oriented official communist parties had done much to weaken the left in both those countries before the far-right group dictatorships took power. So I'm looking at uh, left-wing forms of resistance and looking into the complexities also of of this, of Stalinism versus other forms of, uh, you know, the other types of left-wing groups and individuals. You made an interesting one last question for you, real quick. And you made an interesting point about how how historians have understudied resistance. And I wonder mm-hmm. if you could speculate a little bit about why that is. That's a good question, and and you'll have to read the introduction to my forthcoming <laughs> book in, in twelve years because I'd really like to write mm-hmm. more. It, it is really a void. A, yeah. or, um, there's a book that was edited by Jacques Simon yeah. and a couple others, you know, four mm-hmm. years ago called Resisting Genocide, which is more about rescue. Yeah. But that didn't do a lot. Anyway, um, other people here might have a better answer. I might say it's just because of the, the fact that our field's been around for about 30 years. Yeah. It's always expanding. Mm-hmm. It's now recently taking in 
the relationship to colonialism and imperialism, mm -hmm. and it's just something that hasn't been done very well yeah. yet. It took Holocaust studies 20 or 30 years to mm -hmm. get around to. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, talk, talk yeah. Um, I, maybe we shouldn't blame ourselves. Maybe we yeah. shouldn't blame historians as much. It occurs to me as you're talking that lots of people, historians, were writing about nonviolent forms yeah. of resistance, mm -hmm. you know, even in the 60s. I mean, Eric Hobsbawm's things about you know mm -hmm. uh, early trade unionists taking home uh, scraps from the floor and figuring mm -hmm. that's mine, you know, as, mm -hmm. you know, E.P. Thompson, mm -hmm. those things. Um, certainly a lot of, you know, Genovese's early work about mm -hmm. African-American and, and Holocaust scholars were, you know, often not progressive, but kind of conservative, those looking at res religion in the camps and so on, mm -hmm. always talked about resistance. I think it's more the audience that mm -hmm. people, if you have this kind of subtle notion of resistance, people mm -hmm. think, okay, but fine. What about a gun? You know, mm -hmm. weren't that people like, why weren't they fighting more? Mm -hmm. uh, and they, they don't want to hear about quietly having a prayer service yeah. or uh, taking home uh, things that, you know, the shop owner isn't watching carefully enough and thinking it's yours. Right. Uh, I think it's the audience. Mm -hmm. How do you study that kind of re resistance? That strikes me as a far more difficult thing to study than an armed rebellion. Or It is. There are sources. I've run, Actually, my first book was about these types of resistance mm -hmm. inside in Berlin. There are sources, police records, and other things, memoirs from survivors and other things. But, yeah, what, what I would like to see either me or somebody do is something. Like, you know, we we've, we've now have books and studies in which we place genocides in relation to one another and try to look at similarities and dissimilarities. So I'd like to see something. And, yeah, Jonathan's quite right. People have looked at this in, in Nazi Germany and in, in, uh, uh, in, in slave America and elsewhere. But I'd like to see something where we look at the forms of resistance in Indonesia in Guatemala and East Timor and yeah. Iraqi Kurdistan and uh, during the Armenian genocide and um, somehow find ways to find some semi-coherent way of mm -hmm. drawing some, seeing some patterns and so on. Well, Tommy, let's turn to you. And, and you presented a paper called Revealing Secrets, Satellite Imagery and Mass Graves. What, can you talk to us a little bit about your paper and what, what you concluded. Okay. Uh, well, obviously it was about satellite imagery and mass mm -hmm. graves. Um, I was looking at the, the tools that you can use as a human rights investigator, and one of the things is satellite imagery, um, and how it's, it's archived and how it, it kind of gives you access to places that you normally wouldn't be able to go, like if it's in an active war zone or if it's in a, a military or government-controlled area like North Korea that you can't get in and investigate prison camps. Um, and just using that to create visual evidence and create um, kind of like a timeline of events Mm -hmm. And then the paper looked at uh, three events, Srebrenica, uh, Kaduli in Sudan, where there was an attack on a town and they um, killed, I think, about 100 people and then, then brought them south of the town and created mass graves there. And then Kunduz in Afghanistan, where they were transporting prisoners um, after the siege uh, in 2001 in a, um, a shipping container. And they sealed the container and, and everyone suffocated there and they buried. There's a couple of... Range from a hundred, a couple hundred to a couple thousand people um, in a desert in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and just kind of looked at the um, the satellite imagery from before and after to see if there's ways to mm -hmm. identify what was happening there. Like in Kunduz, you could tell that there was um, an excavator and a dump truck, and in the act of digging up the mass graves, and they were removing some of the bodies to um, kind of hide the evidence, mm -hmm. um, and just kind of. Mostly just to give it um, an overview of the tool that human rights investigators could use um, when you when you don't have that access to the areas like in, a, in more recent human rights violations. So help me understand um, 
whose satellites get used? Are these military satellites or are these commercial satellites? Recently, it's the commercial satellites. Okay. Like uh, Digital Globe is a big um, corporation. They also have a foundation that they give grant uh, satellite image uh, grants to researchers. Um, hmm. I was able to get some imagery, and you could go and look before and after it. It's some huts in Sudan. Um, there's other organizations like Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International mm-hmm. where they can purchase the satellite, um, satellite imagery. And there's also probably come, you know, cooperation between the State Department and other organizations in the U.S. and in Europe. They have a satellite as well, um, just working with different human rights organizations. And so this imagery then gets used by human rights organization as as both proof of crimes, but also in terms of trying to mobilize public opinion? Yeah, it's, it's corroborating, mostly it's corroborating eyewitness testimony um, for a lot of the issues that have happened. Um, and then things like the uh, Satellite Sentinel Project, they were looking at Sudan and South Sudan when they were fighting, um, and trying to track you know, the different forces by satellite imagery and finding where there was mobilization, finding out where there were mass graves. Um, huh and kind of publicize that as well to see if there's any kind of mobilization by the international community. So one, one of the things that I, the, one of the broader themes that has come through in this, uh, this conference and it is a matter of definition, and, and I'm going to open this up to anybody who wants to respond, but is this question of definition, and one thing I've heard several times today is this questioning of intent. And one of the things that strikes me about satellites is that what, what you see is the before and after, but there's really... Or let me ask, how hard it is, is it? Is it possible to perceive or or infer intent from this kind of photographic evidence? I would say no. Um, I mean, it's solid imagery. It's also an interpretation by analysts. Mm-hmm. It's not the definitive thing that this is definitely a dump truck. This is definitely mass graves. Yeah. It's going to be you know they could be moving really anything and bearing it somewhere. Um, it's it's kind of like a way to help corroborate eyewitness testimony and kind of bring all the pieces together. It's just be another um, evidentiary, you know, um, trail that, that you could have when you're making a case towards like a criminal trial or just the international public. Mm-hmm. May I ask a naive question? Yeah. Are the are just technologically um, is satellite imagery kept from the past so we can go back and say, let's see, mm-hmm. three months ago over Darfur on that day. It is. Um, that's when I did my graduate thesis. I was looking at um, imagery from 2000 and then 2007 from before and after some of the attacks in the village. Um, there's less refined imagery, like medium resolution imagery, that's kind of higher up and it's not as it's blurrier. So you can't pick out. You can pick out cities. You can't pick out little you know towns or um, buildings or anything like that. But that goes back to the 70s. And then you've got the military declassified imagery that probably goes like even further than that. So depending on what you look at, you can kind of make a step-by-step analysis on what's happened. Interesting. Well, I want to bring Mike Bryan into this conversation. Um, and, and Mike didn't present a paper per se, but was part of a plenary session. Um, and, and the conference and, and the session was about genocide in world history. And uh, I asked one of the... Uh, uh, people who were uh, attending the panel a little bit to kind of talk to me a little bit before this about what the difference is between world history and being a historian of the world. She gave me a very thoughtful, interesting answer. Um, and some of your comments talked about what it would mean to look at genocide from a world historical perspective. So can you maybe kind of summarize some of those? What does it mean to do genocide studies as a world historian? Well, 
the original idea behind our uh, our symposium was to try to bring the discipline of world history into conjunction with the study of genocide. And uh, I, I made my bones in my in my first book, really my first couple of books, looking at um, at, at micro events, you know, specific bounded territorial happenings uh, in, involving the, the mass slaughter of Jews uh, in connection with Operation Reinhardt. Uh, this, this is a monograph that really did not implicate uh, mm-hmm. the methodologies of world history, which are um, much more comparative, mm-hmm. uh, much more interested in, uh, in not focusing upon a single region or a single isolated state, but instead looking at the interaction of multiple states, multiple nationalities, uh, in generating outcomes that are trans-regional and even, in, in some cases, global or international. Um, I think that this has very important implications for the study of genocide. It, it does entail, to a certain extent, um, stepping aside from or maybe even betraying some of our, our deepest instincts as historians, which is to consider specific yeah. events and specific data, the so-called thick description, which, which Beards has talked so much about. And we are trained in that methodology, and this is how I've always approached the study of history and uh, of, of Holocaust in particular, but I think that what, what world history does is to invite us to, to view uh, the subject of genocide as being a much more um, global, and not just global, but even world historical phenomenon, which um, um, affects not just individuals within a specific uh, bounded space, but has, has international implications that, that, that are meaningful for, for vast regions of the globe. So I, I went, went on to the website for the World Historical Association, looked at their definitions of, of world history and, and their definitions of methodology. So I tried to think in terms of how these methods could be applied to the study of genocide so as to generate a, uh, a genocidal analysis, which was world historical in its, in its basic thrust. And so I tried to reflect on that to a certain extent in seven or eight minutes at the, at the end of our, of our symposium. And I suggested that really there were two approaches which uh, which arise, the first being an approach to, to genocide as a phenomenon that transcends single states or cultures. And I suggested that, uh, that Ben Kiernan in particular at Yale has, has advanced a very interesting social scientific model that seems to conform to this first prototype of a of a, uh, a, a world historical approach to genocide. Of course, he tries to, to argue for a... Uh, um, for a fourfold uh, uh, list of criteria, which he finds really characterized genocides going all the way back to Greco-Roman times and this siege of Carthage and, and tracing it forward to, uh, uh, to the present time. Uh, the, the second approach that I think is a world historical, uh, world historically based approach to genocide would be more in the area of comparative history. And, and here I, um, I picked up on uh, or, or kind of focused on Raphael Lemkin's original definition, which has been, uh, I think, almost a, uh, a recurrent leitmotif of the conference today. I think Lemkin's, I, I flitted from one uh, panel to another today as the host, and I think Lemkin's name came up in every panel that, uh, that I, I, I listened to. But his, his definition of genocide, which has generated quite a bit of discussion and even controversy, um, continues at the at the level of, of, uh, of uh, international law to generate all kinds of different appropriations of the term. We know that the Cambodians um, in 
trying Khmer Rouge perpetrators in the extraordinary chambers have taken that definition and uh, and and really reformulated it in accordance with their understanding, their cultural understandings of uh, of genocide. Uh, we find similar sorts of tweakings. And Jonathan made reference to the to the, the trial by the polls and the Supreme uh, National Tribunal, the NTN, uh, after World War II of um, seven very high-profile cases involving hosts and Weifold and a few others. Uh, and likewise, the the, the polls uh, adopted genocide and tweaked it in various ways uh, to to give it a very distinctive uh, spin. It was unique to their understanding of, of genocide, and this was two years before the convention was even adopted by the, mm-hmm. by the UN. So I, I see this as being an interesting way of, uh, of thinking about uh, genocide that has world historical implications, and it, would, it draws us away from just the, the single-minded focus upon uh, events that are, are, are local, localized, relatively localized, or are, are ex- extremely particular but compel us to think much more generally about this as a, as a human process. Uh, one of the scholars who was on the round table, Chris Mariello, rightly pointed out that we have to be cautious because every event is, uh, is inflected by the specific culture and nationality of the, the group and their cultural understandings of the event and specific history unique to that event. All of that is true. So really we are like trapeze artists balanced on that wire, you know, poised between specificity on the one hand, but also, a need to try to push our our, uh, our findings, hopefully, in a more general direction, so that if we can identify certain signals or certain alarm bells for this phenomenon, we might at some point be able, theoretically, to intervene in order to prevent these events from happening, which would be the happiest and best of all worlds, I think. So we, we have about 10 minutes left, uh, and we, we, we're, I thought we'd move towards some of the more broader themes here. And, and your last comment kind of hints at one. I heard a number of places across the day a concern about how you teach these matters and about the way in which you want to present the Holocaust and genocide and, and, and massive violations of human rights in a way that is going to mean something important for the students. And so I'd like to, to open up, and I guess I'll just ask you, John, to start. Um, what should our goal be in teaching these kind of things? Um, well, that's not the easiest question, but I guess, um, well, you know, I, sometimes I, I'll, I'll begin a class a semester by saying something like, I'm, let's not be grandiose and say that we're all going to be more beautiful, uh-huh. be beautiful human beings and put an end to genocide. There was some of that kind of rhetoric around uh, that attended the opening of the Holocaust Museum yeah. um, in the in the run-up to it. And then when it finally opened, if you simply walk in here, you'll become a better human being and so on. Um, I guess we all have our different goals. I would say my goal is, though, <laughs> is just to try to induce people um, to think of themselves as a member of the human race instead of as a patriotic American or whatever they happen to be and to reflect upon what it means to be a human. I also think it's important that we not have a sort of moral smugness where we say, we're, I would not, I would have saved Jews or I would have fought the Nazis or I would have saved Tutsi or whatever, because we really don't know. And that's an important lesson. That's something I learned from one of my mentors, Christopher Browning, and his book, According to Ordinary Man, is, continues to exert a big influence, as it should, that we really are all capable of doing these things. Um, so I, I guess our goal is, uh, if I have a classroom of 40 people, 
I would hope that every single one of them is going to learn something of lasting value. I know that most uh, half of them take it to fulfill a requirement. I know that maybe half of them take it out of a real genuine interest drive from the get-go. But I, through the course of talking about these matters, by the end of the semester, every, everyone should have absorbed something. They might not remember exactly how many, you know, exactly what happened in 1915, or exactly yeah. what happened, uh, or exactly who the who the three leaders of the Armenian genocide was in the Ottoman Empire. But they've learned something at a deeper level about the human capacity for evil, but also about structures and and about things like like in a deeper way about things like racism, about other forms of bigotry, and about their um, about the, the the lethal potentials of these things. Yeah. Mike, I actually have a follow up uh, mm-hmm. question, comment and question, mm-hmm. and you'd make, make reference to Chris Browning, of course. Mm-hmm. Another name that came up I think, yeah. in every panel was his mm-hmm. book on uh, ordinary men. Um, but there's a section in this book where he talks about Stanley Milgram mm-hmm. and, the, and the famous or infamous, mm-hmm. uh, depending on your standpoint, uh, experiments that were conducted. It's very shocking experiment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, <infinitely. laughs> um, the end of a long day of conference. <laughs> yes, it's been a long time day. Um, I had the impression I've read his book several times, and I do teach it from time to time. I had the impression uh, each time I read it that Chris seems to be a devotee to a certain extent of. of of uh, Milgram's results. Of course, his results are that about two thirds mm-hmm. comply with the command. And uh, you always have the more than more often than not, you'll have one third more or less who will opt out or offer some, some, some resistance to the enticements of uh, what Milgram called malevolent authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you able to communicate that at all in your, in your teaching to suggest to the students that, yeah, more than likely, two thirds of you would go along, and the one third, more or less, probably would opt out. Does that ever come up in the context of your teaching? Well, yeah, sometimes, maybe not directly to have like two thirds of them, but like volunteer to, to to assume the guilt of the whole or something. But uh, but we also do talk in all my classes, whether it's a comparative genocide class or one a full semester on the Holocaust. We 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 talk a lot about racism in the nineteenth century which really began before then, but the heyday of racism and imperialism, and then how that shapes modern genocide. So we talk a lot also. I mean, most students will be U.S. citizens. We talk a lot about stuff like that that um, that directly affects U.S. history. But just also on Milgram, there's a very good book that came out recently by a fellow named Ayal Press called Beautiful Souls, and the subtitle is something about people who... Anyway, Press starts in his intro, and he's a journalist, which means he's also a very nice writer compared to Sometimes, frankly, it's a way historians. <laughs> but he's, but it really is a wonderful book. And then he tells the stories of, he said when he read about Milgram, he wanted to know about that third, about that other third. Mm-hmm. And we don't uh, uh, think enough about the people who stand out and who do stand against the tide of conformism and peer pressure and everything mm-hmm. else. So um, that's, um, at any rate, that's something else that's important in teaching is uh, in, even in genocide not to falsely exaggerate resistance or defiance or nonconformity, but to include the full range of human responses in times of, of severe moral crisis. John? I have, John a slight, I, mean? uh, I have a slight different background from mm-hmm. you guys because I've only taught all these years in the law school, different law schools. But uh, as a result, I mean, it, it sort of answers a bunch of questions. The most recent, the Milgram issue is... Um, how do you convince people they'll be good or encourage good? Or mm-hmm. um, law students look for something else, and I don't have to talk about you know uh, Christian values of Western Europe uh, versus Hobbesian views of life. I mean, I can basically say, look, the framers of this country, I mean, Madison and others in the Constitution, assumed 
that power can be very dangerous, that we set up structures which they intricately designed that will uh, confine power, um, and that that's the American way. And, you know, that doesn't explain, oh, yeah, well, what about slavery in the 19th century? Obviously doesn't account for all sorts of things, but it does say, um, don't assume that your idealism will mean that you would be the likely resistor. Assume that this country is framed on the idea that power can be very dangerous, and we make it hard for things to get done, which can be frustrating to many of us much mm-hmm. of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, more generally, though, about the point about the value of teaching, I mean, I have you know, also, because I, I teach in a law school, I have this very practical outcome, which is, weirdly, um, unexpectedly enough, there will be students in my class who get jobs in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, I have students who are both prosecutors and defense lawyers in The Hague. I have students who have worked for a variety of other uh, NGOs uh, around the world, you know, sometimes short-term internships, sometimes as careers. So, you know, weirdly enough, it's what every dean wants to hear. I'm practical. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I, I also, I guess, try and teach them, you know, in addition to, you know, obviously I share almost everything both of you have said about, you know, values and content, but I also, because it's law, I have to teach them and want to teach them tools. Mm. So how do you read the Genocide Convention? What cases, let's say, have there been that have narrowed this or questioned that? Or if you're in the next case, which where would you look and is what might be a good argument if you're a defense lawyer in this genocide case? I mean, that's that's part of teaching legal skills, which I guess would only, you know, would apply more to me than, than, than you guys teaching history. Yeah, Tommy, that your paper, at least, and, and your position suggests that, that you, is, is directly um, focused on a kind of practical impact mm-hmm. of your research. And I wonder, wonder what you would think about what you want people to know and get from your research and to what degree studying genocide needs to have a practical result with a practical impact in today's world? Um, I'll, I'll kind of respond to these yeah, please. first as well. Um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm coming as a student to genocide studies. Mm-hmm. I don't really have any background in mm-hmm. it. Um, I, you know, learning in high school and stuff about the Holocaust mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and then there were some questions today about how everything was focused on kind of the 20th century and genocides and how we should be looking back. Uh, we should also be looking forward too, and, and there's genocides that are happening right now on the rise. And I mean, like the ISIS and Syria stuff, nothing's really happening. Yeah. Um, and I, I think this kind of the newer technology and the new studies um, can kind of allow new ways to look at what's happening and maybe um, new ideas as to how to solve things and how to prevent these things from happening in the future. Like, you know, if you see things that are happening in Syria with the civil war, um, this is what's happened in the past. And maybe these triggers in satellite imagery or, or any kind of other indicators, um, can allow people to kind of preemptively go in there and try to defuse the situation before it becomes a full scale genocide. It becomes, you know, before thousands of tens of thousands of refugees are fleeing from the countries. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that, in a way, I mean, what you do, the uh, Tommy, I'm sorry, the, what, what the satellite imagery does, and other forms of intelligence, you know, in a way, is, is fascinating. It's really exciting for all of us in archaeology, also, mm-hmm. and for many of us, it, you know, the temptation is to almost hope for too much. In the same way, the criminal prosecutors mm-hmm. and defense lawyers, you know, 25 years ago, with the advent of DNA evidence, kind of well, sort out everything with DNA. Well, lots of times you can't. Yeah, and that's that. True. It's really tough often to convince juries that someone is still guilty, even you know when they go off in the room and think, well, there's no DNA evidence. He didn't do it. Um, and, and there's this balance of, you know, there's a real audience looking for your 
um, answers. And, and yeah. we have to be careful not to put too much weight on it or ask too much of you as if it's the magic bullet for us mm-hmm. uh, to solve all our is it is it? Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely true. Um, yeah, it, it's just an interpretation of something. So it is kind of like a fingerprint, or I mean, I think there was a case a while ago where there was a, um, a person in Spain that was con- they were arrested, um, or they were they were in Oregon and they were arrested for the uh, Spanish bombings in 2007 or whatever it was on the train because their fingerprint matched, mm-hmm. and it just so happened that they had the same fingerprint as one of the bombers. Hmm. Um, same thing with imagery; it's kind of you could interpret it a different way, and it's not a you know 100 percent accurate scientific evidence um, and just kind of using that to combine with other things would be a useful tool. Has it been used yet in, in a legal case? I know it's been used obviously by foreign ministries and state departments and NGOs. I, was, I know that it was presented in the um, Yugoslavian International Criminal Tribunal um, in 95 huh. um, and I, I was actually showing some of the imagery from the Shrovenese and stuff over there as well. Um, I'm not sure if it's been used as like solid evidence in any of the um, trials I've heard um, or read some articles about how it can be introduced and how there needs to be more um, of a collection process and how to make it so it's more airtight. Yeah, chain of custody. Chain of custody things. Um, but I'm not sure if that's been implemented yet. Well, I know we could talk for a very long time about this, but I also know it's the end of a very long day for all of us. And so I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. I very much appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. And I hope that sometime in the future we'll have a chance to talk to each of you individually at greater length. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. You've been listening to a conference report from a conference titled Genocide in World History, held on the campus of Bryant University in Smithfield, Rhode Island. My panelists included John Cox, Tommy O'Connell, Jonathan Bush, and Mike Bryant. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll talk with Nicholas Stargart about his new book, The German War, A Nation Under Arms, 1939-1945, Citizens and Soldiers. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.